I wonder if any of you have any regrets in life. Are there maybe moments in your life that you look back on and you think, you know what, I wish I had lived out that moment differently. I wish that I had in that moment made a better choice because the consequence of the choice that I made caused maybe more damage than I intended. There's a brilliant clip from a very famous film Uh, which speaks, granted, in a somewhat more flippant way to the heart of today's message. It's the clip that we know from The Lion King, where Rafiki the monkey smacks Simba over the head with his staff. And and Simba, of course, naturally uh, reacts negatively to that. Simba, of course, uh, says, that hurt, that hurt. And Rafiki says, yes, The past can hurt, but, of course, we can learn from it. And then he goes to smack him again, and of course Simba ducks down and avoids the stick. Now, we might want to push back on some of the flippant uh, dynamics of that little dialogue, that little clip. That idea that because it's in the past, uh, Rafiki says, "Okay, it doesn't matter, it's in the past. Because, you know, we all live with the consequences of our past. But what it does brilliantly is that it emphasises that we don't need to be bound by the past. Rather, we can learn from it and live differently as a result of the wisdom that we've gained from it. Just to recap from last week, we've begun our journey through the Bible And it's uh, as seen through the eyes of the people of God's story. God's story lived out uh, or often rejected in the lives of ordinary people. When they were obedient, they flourished. And when they went their own way, life inevitably unraveled. We started last week with the incredible account of creation that God, and and that is the plural form that's written in in the text, and we could propose that it's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the beginning, before there was anything, created something out of nothing. And what does he say? It was good. The climax of that creation was humanity, man made first and woman made to be a perfect companion for man. Not purely that it would be for the benefit of man, of course, but that they might benefit and complete each other and as image bearers subdue and take dominion of God's good earth. Everything created in what we would say is perfect balance under the perfect balance of male and female stewardship. And this morning we're going to see how we've got from that place to where we are today. What happened? Who takes their share of responsibility for what happened and how might it be resolved? I shared some key questions last week. 
which we're going to examine as we are introduced to a new character in God's story, and that is, of course, the serpent. Questions we posed last week at the end of last week's uh, time together. Who or what is this serpent? Why was he allowed into the garden? How should Adam and Eve have responded to his words? And, And what impact has this moment in history had on the rest of history? So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. They're going to look at the whole chapter. So deep breath as we read the whole chapter. It shouldn't take too long, but it's all important for us to think about today. Let's read God's word together. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you To not eat from. The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labour pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, Because you have listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labour all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground. Since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man 
named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. There's so much in there and a lot we won't cover this morning. Uh, which is a shame because there are a lot of great dynamics we could touch on and would get a lot of enjoyment uh, about reading about. But but we're going to focus this morning on the th- perhaps the third best known character of God's story. That is this serpent who goes by many different names throughout the Bible. Some of which we heard during our Revelation study, the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil and Satan. Now, we're introduced to him here as part of a creation narrative. And perhaps we can all in our mind's eye picture a snake dangling down from a tree with a tongue hanging out, of course, uh, beside a, a cartoon lady standing naked behind, of course, appropriately, uh, a, a shrubbery, and she's holding an apple. And I want us to perhaps sideline that image for a moment as we consider uh, a different uh, picture in our minds. A picture that people like Dr. Michael Heiser and Dr. Tim Mackey. Dr. Michael Heiser is an author and and a, and a theologian and a, a, a teacher. Dr. Tim Mackey will know, of course, from the Bible Project. They suggest something else might be unfolding here. And and for that, we have to remember that we, as Christians, will hold or should hold to a supernatural worldview, that there are creatures beyond those listed in Genesis 1 and 2 that were created by God and existing before the creation of this world. Not creatures that are equal to God, they're created by God, but also not exactly like the created, tangible animals and humans that we see every day. Leads us to our first question to to ask of this text then, which will help us to understand it more fully. Who or what is this serpent? Well, the Bible describes him here uh, in, in quite literal, natural terms. And whilst our minds might simply picture a snake, whether hanging from a tree or, or crawling on the ground, There's good argumentation to suggest that this serpent wasn't actually a literal physical snake, or at least he was much more than that. So to answer this question, we have to consider where this moment is unfolding. The Bible tells us only a few details um, in various places about the garden. It tells us that it is a garden that it's in the east, and that it is also a mountain. A mountain. Other parts of the Bible refer to to this Genesis uh, moment as being located on a mountain. It's a place of perfection where heaven and earth meet and are operating in perfect union. 
Now, in, in ancient Jewish thought, not just, not just Jewish thought, but of course that would be our, our primary focus, the mountain and the high places were the places where one could encounter God. We see this throughout the Old and the New Testament. Moses went up the mountain to receive the law. People uh, throughout the, the Bible are said to go up to Jerusalem, even though Jerusalem wasn't the highest point uh, of geography in that area. It's understood as a high place because it was the place where one would encounter God. We also remember Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman. He says, the day is coming and, and is here where you will neither worship God on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You see, high places were places of worship in this culture. We see this in other forms of religious practice too, beyond Jewish thought. That people would build places of worship, maybe temples or or monuments such as to uh, Asherah, to Ashtaroth, to the, the poles that were built for cultic worship to false gods. So it's fair to assume that given what's unfolding in early Genesis, that Eden was the first high place, the place where heaven and earth overlapped and where the natural and supernatural coexisted together. And I love that picture because it shows us that humans were originally created to live in these sacred, supernatural spaces and created to have a purpose in those spaces, to have value and worth in those spaces. So in this high and sacred space, we're introduced to a creature who, as people like Dr. Heiser and and Dr. Tim Mackey would suggest, to a creature who was actually not a, we might say, naturally created being, but rather a supernaturally created being. Not a a serpent in the way that we picture snakes, but rather a seraph. We've heard the word seraphim perhaps before of, uh, of, of heavenly beings. The seraph being a throne guardian angel. Now, the Bible depicts this creature in what we might say as as natural terms. Um, You know, we've seen that with regards to the snake. But we also see the word seraph is used in the Old Testament to describe angelic beings, heavenly beings. It's the same word used for the fiery, uh, poisonous serpent as it is for the majestic, six-winged, angelic creature. We see it in Isaiah 6, Isaiah 14, Isaiah 30, amongst other places in the Bible. We see that from the rest of Scripture, this garden creature isn't natural. We see that actually he is a, a, we might say, angelic being, but not in the good sense. Now, over time, the writers of the Bible developed language to describe pictures um, which would paint this image of this creature. We could turn to Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14. Both of these portions of scripture, uh, they speak in, in a sense similar to what we're seeing in Genesis 3. They use natural dynamics, so we have kings, but also pointing towards or painting a picture of this fallen angel being who is uh, this angelic being who is 
a Satan and the Satan. And we'll, we'll explain what I mean by that in a, in a brief moment. But let's look at Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every kind of precious stone covered you, carnelian, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise and emerald. Your mountings and settings were crafted in gold. They were prepared on the day you were created. You were an anointed guardian cherub, for I had appointed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. There we go. There's that high place. You walked among the fiery stones. From the day you were created, you were blameless in your ways until wickedness was found in you. And let's turn to Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 14 and verses 12 to 14. This again helps to paint the picture of, of what is going on here. Isaiah chapter 14 and verses 12 to 14. He says, shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens. You destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most these two portions refer to, uh, in a sense, to earthly kings, but paint the picture, of course, as we can see, of a, a supernatural, heavenly, angelic creature called, we might say, a Satan and the Satan. Now, the name Satan, it isn't mentioned uh, in, in many places with regard to Genesis 3 account. Because this wasn't actually the creature's name. Rather, it described his character and his nature. Satan actually, when we translate it, just means uh, to oppose or to be an adversary. And in this case, he is an adversary to the plan of God. And in the Old and New Testament, we see that kings can be Satans uh, as they stand in opposition to God's plan. That even in Jesus' conversation with Peter, remember this moment, he says, get behind me, Satan. We could actually unpack that. I've always pictured that as being um, a moment where Satan took over Peter. And, 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 and actually, when we stop and think, it's actually Jesus saying, don't stand in opposition to the plan of God. Do not be a Satan to what God has planned. So hopefully this is helping to, to build a picture for us. Over time in church history, it was understood that he was the first of many adversaries of God's will, God's plan. He was a Satan. And because he was the first and he was the continual source of opposition, he was also classified the Satan. So, question. One of the questions that perhaps people always ask uh, ab about this moment, why was he in the garden? Well, for years I understood this as being a really hard question to answer. In my mind, if God had not let him in, then all this mess would not have happened. But then I came to consider that in order for people to have free will and therefore to choose freely and willingly whether to obey God or not, 
there must have been some alternative options. And that's why we can answer that question, why did God put the tree in the garden as well? That one tree that they were not to eat from. There had to be alternative options in order for people to freely choose. That tree was in full view, but it was off limits. And of course, therefore, there had to be a voice that would challenge, perhaps even test Adam and Eve's resolve. Do they choose with their free will to obey God or do they choose with their free will to follow their own desires? But you know, in in studying for this, coming to an understanding that this garden was also a high place where heaven and earth were in union with each other. The teachings that I've studied and it also dawning on me that this was a space where both earthly and heavenly beings would have had access to. So the question shouldn't be, why was the Satan allowed into the garden? Because this is a place where the dimensions of heaven and earth overlapped and therefore heavenly and earthly creatures would have been there together. A space in which humans are created to rule over all of God's created order. Now the question we could ask from that is, might this have sparked a little jealousy in one who thought more highly of himself than he ought? Genesis 3 doesn't unpack for us directly what this serpent, this seraph, the Satan wanted in this moment. But in a sense, it's revealed by what he says and what he does. He attempts to lead people into that which he himself fantasizes over. To set his throne above the stars of God, I will make myself like the Most High. You can see how in his mind he perhaps thought, if I can lead the pinnacle of God's creation astray, by getting them to partner with me in in my mission, then I can indeed set my throne above the stars and make myself like the most high. And, And it all came about through a simple planted thought, where God had created the perfect space where heaven and earth are united and where God offered the pinnacle of his creation access to everything good but with conditions attached to it. Yet go and enjoy the beauty of everything around you. You've got everything you need to flourish and prosper, but just refrain from this one thing. Just don't eat from that tree. You've got all the rest of the trees, but but don't eat from that tree. It sounds like it wasn't too much to ask when when we think about it, don't we? It sounds like... Given everything else they were given, this wasn't too much to ask. And there's so much theology in this moment. We've got the the free will of every man and woman to love and therefore obey God's commands or to, of course, reject God's commands. It takes us to Jesus' words in the New Testament, If you love me, you will obey my commands. There's a picture of Jesus restoring something of the unified heaven and earth uh, as well. When we look at what the garden was created to be and what it has become, in a sense, we have a picture of Jesus uh, in in his words uh, to the first century Jews 
that the kingdom of God was in their midst. This idea of the kingdom of God and and an earth being reunited through Christ. In this moment, we see the perfect creation turning into the broken creation and therefore the role of Christ in restoring it. But we can trace back every aspect, of course, of brokenness to this very moment where Eve chose to follow her desire rather than God's commands. And and Adam followed suit. We've got to be careful never to place the blame on Eve here, but to also challenge where Adam was in this moment, because Adam was also tasked with being obedient and, and he he failed. He failed in this moment. Romans 5 verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. This is the moment where everything broke. They chose to give in to the lie that temporary satisfaction was worth it. They chose to let their immediate desires dominate the long-term consequence of their decisions and, and the result was a fracturing of heaven and earth. What God had created as good became tainted with what we would understand now as sin. We could define sin in, in some regards uh, from this moment I'll do it my way rather than doing it God's way. And literally every broken aspect of human history can be traced back to that very truth or the result of this very moment. Now that sounds a bit depressing, doesn't it? It Sounds a little bit hopeless. But then we speak the words, but God. These are important words in our faith. Amen. But God. Enter the voice of justice and of love. The Bible talks a lot about the justice of God. Psalm uh, 7 verse 11 talks about God as a just judge. We know God is a righteous God of justice. Does God say in this moment, look, do you know guys, it doesn't matter. You've made a mistake, dust yourself off and let's start again. No, he doesn't say to Adam and Eve, it doesn't matter because it does matter. It did matter. God's rightful place as the Most High had been undermined and challenged by the very ones he had lovingly created. We know that mistakes have consequences. I'm sure we can all reflect back on times in our own lives where we've felt that reality very acutely. We see the consequences played out here. Genesis 3 verses 14 and the first part of 15, there are consequences for the serpent. Genesis 6 uh, verse 16 of chapter 3, uh, there's consequences for the woman. And then chapter 3 verses 17 to 19, there's consequences for the man. So, but God. In this moment, we also have a hint towards the solution. What does Psalm 103 verse 8 tell us? It says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. We have this little hint here. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, the second part of verse 15, it's the earliest hint towards Jesus coming to earth to die on the cross for the sins 
of humanity. This is God, of course, saying to the serpent, this is the consequence of your disobedience. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, that is, he being the offspring of Eve, and you will strike his heel. The earliest hint towards Jesus coming to earth to die on the cross for the sin of humanity. The the hint that one will come who will strike the serpent and in doing so will strike down the plan and mission of the serpent. That is to ascend to the place of God and be like the Most High. What can we learn from all of this? Well, It reminds us that we were created to dwell in sacred places. In the places where heaven and earth were united. It reminds us that we all have a choice given by God to obey his commands and to flourish in the good boundaries that he has set or to go our own way and to pay the price for that. But it also reminds us that even in the midst of catastrophe, God has a plan. And I love that from this portion of God's word. Even in the midst of catastrophe, God has a plan. You see, the significance of this moment in the garden should never be underplayed. Adam and Eve's decision has had far-reaching impact on innumerable generations of people. Leading Jesus to willingly drag the tree up the hill and die on it all because Adam and Eve chose to eat from the one tree that they shouldn't have eaten from, but also that God's plan of redemption was initiated so immediately um, that it shows us that he remained in control throughout it all, not exerting his will by force over humans, but rather paving the way to redemption through their repentance. That in this moment, even though the serpent, Adam and Eve, had determined that their will be done, God would have the final say that his will would be done and his will will be done. Humanity's past can and, and does hurt, but we can learn from it by trusting that God's word God's command and his instruction are good. That in it, we find many days, we're back to Proverbs 3 again from these past few weeks, that in it, God's word, his command, and his instruction, we find many days. In it is a full life and in it is well-being. And in living out of it, We let the world see a different way. That is God's way, a way that leads to a place where heaven and earth once again are united and where humanity can live forever again in those sacred places. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that teaches us so much about our history, and also about our future. Father, help us to learn from Genesis 3 and help us to pursue your truth as we live out our days. 
for your namesake. Amen. Thank you.